welcome back to Close Reads here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern. This is a Q&A episode, and the people that I will be asking questions of are Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh, the usual stars of the show. Angelina and Tim, welcome back to Close Reads. Are you ready to dive into the difficult questions and the pit that they are going to they're going to turn into uh, from the from the audience members? Are you, are you guys ready for that adventure? No, I'm ready for not. that adventure. Absolutely not. <laughs> Can I confess on the air that the Q&A episode of each book is my least favorite? Because it's terrifying? It's terrifying. It's terrifying. <laughs> I have no context. You see, when I read a chapter, I don't know exactly what questions you're going to ask, but I have a ballpark. <laughs> <laughs> There's some boundaries. There's a fence. The this Q&A, is... man, they go everywhere. I feel, I'm, I'm, I feel unprepared all the time, you know, mm-hmm. like. Hmm. Compare this book to a traumatic childhood memory. I'm like, okay, wasn't ready for that. <laughs> well, I will try to. I'll try to. Um, I'll try to give you some questions that have some kind of specific context or something. I'll figure out how that goes. How that's going to go as as we're going along. Um, now, Tim, t- Angelina, you have a class coming up, so we're not going to take too long today. I don't want to, you know, use too much of your time. But Tim's in New York right now, and he went to the ballet. So should we make fun of him about that, or do we did we let him get away with it? I want to know what kind of tights he wore. <laughs> oh, wait. Oh, Tim, you were in the ballet. That makes more sense. Yeah, slim-fitting tights. That's yeah. the kind that I wore. <laughs> Tim, are you graceful on your feet? <laughs> well, compared to the people that I saw this this weekend, no, I'm not graceful. <laughs> I, I saw, just because this will interest uh, close readers, because some are doing Anna Karenina. I saw Anna Karenina at the New York Ballet. I'd only seen one ballet before in my life. I saw the Nutcracker in Atlanta at the Fox Theater. And I guess I was glad that I saw the Nutcracker. You know, it was more, I just didn't really care for it at all. This, Anna Karenina, by the Elfman Ballet of St. Petersburg in oh, wow. New York City was something from it was unbelievable. I've never seen anything like it. I was I was transfixed for two hours. Utterly transfixed. I didn't realize it's that. like if you imagine that someone did they of course could not do the whole story of Anna Karenina. They cut out um Levin and Kitty's part of it just because you can't do all of it. So it just concentrated on Anna, Karenin, and Vronsky. Imagine telling that story and you can only use like the physical form in ballet, no words. And they, they, they did it. It was incredible. So do you feel differently about the ballet now? I do. And it's mainly because of this one Boris Eifman, who is my new hero, he <laughs> is a Russian ballet composer. And what they did, I mean, how do I say this? I just always assumed that ballet, and maybe I didn't just assume, maybe it's true. Ballet was a very, um, very traditional, very, of course, demanding. But as I understood ballet, there's kind of like preset dances, moves, um, and those preset dances and moves. Like, you just got, like, a very limited palette. But what Boris Eichmann apparently has done throughout his career, starting in the 70s, was he just kind of revolutionized ballet, and it's all about conveying emotion through the body. And, of course, it includes the traditional ballet moves, but it does something completely different and i i just thought okay boris eifman is my new hero i don't know anything about ballet but (laughs) whatever he decided to do beginning in the 1970s i am on board and so i'm making my announcement on the air i'm becoming a professional ballet dancer Mm. in my mid-40s it's, I think, you guys think that's a good you know move? what they say? It's never I, too late to be who you should, always should have been. So. <laughs> I think True. you should go for this. Angelina, do you get the sense that Tim may have gone down a ballet Wikipedia hole? <laughs> <laughs> no, none of it was actually Wikipedia. It was all program stuff. Oh, okay. It was nice, all, nice. All from about Boris Eichmann in the program. Hey, Angelina. City Ballet. We discovered recently that you were a basketball star. Were you also a ballerina? I was not. <laughs> Are you into the ballet? 
I've never seen a ballet. I don't have a, a, a strong compulsion to want to go to a ballet. But I am going to an opera on Friday. I'm going to see The Marriage of Figaro in Charlotte. Oh, Looking nice. Looking forward to that. Nice, nice. <clears throat> I haven't been to the opera or the ballet in... Many, well, couldn't let Tim be the only like high cultured one in the show this week? <laughs> right, trying to throw exactly. in a little Mozart. There will be words at this performance. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's, there's actual language. Uh, well, hey, we're going to answer some questions before we do. Though, I want to just remind everybody about the Duke University's Arete Initiative. They have this summer, uh, the high school summer seminar in ethics, philosophy, and religion on the Duke campus in Durham, North Carolina. This goes from July 9th to the 14th. And it will prepare high school students with a roadmap for approaching the, those same subjects in college. They'll be using texts from literature, philosophy, theology, and the seminar will examine such topics as the meaning of virtue, the substance of human nature, the questions of human flourish, flourishing, flourishing, the metaphysics of reality, and the nature of truth. Reading is difficult, guys. Uh, students will also discuss the ideas of natural law, the relationship between philosophy and theology, and the relationship between science and religion. Uh, we've mentioned it before, but there is no fee associated with applying or attending, which I still think is kind of crazy. Uh, and those admitted will be housed in the Duke dormitories and provided with meal cards. If you want to learn more about this, you should go ahead and email John Rose at john.rose at duke.edu. And again, that's J-O-H-N dot R-O-S-E at duke.edu. He can give you further details, answer questions about the curriculum, the teachers, whether it's right for your students and your family and so forth. And applications will be considered on a rolling basis until April 26th of this month. So that's about 16 days from when we are recording today on April 10th, and this show will go up on April 13th. So, uh, David, again, should we say something about uh, my Cupid and Psyche webinar that's coming up next week? I realize we've, we've never announced it on the yeah, show. Yeah, say something. Say something well, about that. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to be doing a webinar uh, via the Searcy Institute on, it's next Tuesday. What is that? April 17th? Uh, yes. Um, and it's on Cupid and Psyche. So it's it's part of that same series that we've been doing on fairy tales and myths and kind of shorter um, shorter stories. So if you're interested in that, even if you can't make the live class, uh, uh, you do have to register ahead of time. But if you register, you do have access to the recordings. Um, and people have... Uh, uh, we've gotten a lot of good feedback from these. So if, if you're interested in taking a really in-depth look at the um, myth of Cupid and Psyche and how to read a myth and how it relates to fairy tales and all the usual stuff that I do, uh, sign up. I think it's 10 bucks. So I think so. So 10 bucks. Yeah. Pretty good deal. You can head over to our website. You can find that under the events tab. Uh, there's a little section for webinars and you can find that there. should be pretty easy to find. Or you can just post on Facebook, Instagram, and so forth as well. Okay, let's do questions on on True Grit. Let's conclude our, our True Grit conversation. I'm kind of sad. When we do these books that are not as long, we go through them so quickly. And I don't have that like urge to move on to the next thing quite as much. Um, I really want to reread it. So to me, you know, that's like the highest compliment I can give to a book, mm -hmm. right? When yeah, you finish yeah. it, you really want to read it again. So yeah, so yeah. well done, Charles Portis. I want to, I don't want to really leave the world and I and I want to read it again now that I know what to expect. So I'm looking at the questions here on the Facebook page and next to it is an upcoming group events thing. And uh, somebody set up a, um, you know, somebody set up a, a close read sort of get together at this convention in Cincinnati this weekend. So um, what I, what I like about it though, is that it's at the red, it, red roost the Searcy convention. No, no, no. This no. is at the homeschool convention this weekend in Cincinnati. So anybody that's close read people, listeners or whatever are just going to get together there. Um, at, um, I love at, that. But by the time I this airs, it'll have already happened. But the um, it's at the Red Roost Tavern. So awesome. the Red Roost very Tavern is where they're, and it's right next to the questions about rooster. It sounds is. very gritty. Just the name, it, right? It does. Yes, it does. I, I imagine it's a longer trail somewhere. I saw that events are circulating. I mean, I didn't look really closely, but I saw that events are circulating on the Facebook page, and people are having meetups. I, I think that is so super cool and awesome, and I just. I love that. I love, love the idea that these little close reads groups are springing up all over and that all these people who felt lonely and weird and alone for their obsession with books are finding other weird <laughs> obsessed people to not feel alone with. You're still going to feel weird, spoiler alert, but at and least I, you won't feel alone. <laughs> and I like that uh, people are don't like, we don't need to be there for all these things. You guys can, you guys can have your close reads get togethers, you know, without Angelina Tim and I having to be there. I mean, I don't mean that like we wouldn't be happy to be there, but you know, you don't need us. You can still do it. And you know, it's like, 
setting your children free, right? Just kidding. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't know what that's like. I do not know where this <laughs> conversation is going at so, all. So I have, a, uh, I have a, here's the question. We're going to start here at the top. We're going to try to do the approach where we get through as many as we can. So Tim, here's a question for you. Should Maddie have forgiven Tom Cheney instead of seeking justice? Uh, she could have done both. The right solution is she could have done both, but I don't know that um, forgiving him and neglecting justice, I, I would be against that. Uh, you know, one of things, well, Angelina, yes. <laughs> what do can, you I, can, I, can I say a little bit more go, about yeah, that? Go ahead, I mean, go ahead, go ahead. I think sometimes in, in certain, whenever we start getting around, uh, you start um, making sound like theological questions. We He's start. We, like no, I was gonna say whenever we start getting into theological issues, which are like always part of the show, if not in the foreground, in the background. You know, we always want to. I, I at least want to tiptoe around certain things um, sure, sure. because our listeners come from all sorts of different denominational and traditional backgrounds. There's right. a certain kind of subset of Christianity, I think, that sees justice and mercy as um antithetical to each other they're almost um at odds with each other and no doubt there's a tension between mercy and justice but i don't know i don't see one as the enemy of the other um so i think in this case maddie should have pursued justice and she could have applied mercy Tom, I forgive you for um, killing my father. And I think that's like the path of true happiness for her. But I don't think that um, offering him mercy, but not also offering him justice would have been the path of truth and salvation for either of them. The, there'd be like cosmic disorder. There'd be cosmic disorder if that was the case. Angelina, would you like to add anything to the to this question? Yes, I agree with everything Tim said, and I would just add this thought that um, forgiveness is primarily a personal thing, and justice is primarily a community thing, and that's why I think that they are not opposed to one another. Very, very often when you listen to courtroom speeches of victims, for example, many of them are able to express profound mercy and forgiveness mm -hmm. to people who have done horrible things to them. Mm -hmm. And yet they still desire justice. And one of the things they'll say is, we don't want this to happen to anyone else. And so mm -hmm. part of the function of justice is bigger than just, quote unquote, punishing the criminal. It's about protecting the community, right? Bringing the darkness to light, taking a threat out. There's no question Tom Cheney would have considered, continued to murder people for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. do you, so, so that's an interesting point. Do you, do either of you think that... <clears throat> that maddie was thinking about that or was she thinking in terms of this is something i need to get for my family like was there was there was she viewing things in that larger perspective of the community like on, on behalf of the community i don't think she was i think she's wrapped up in her own personal quest but i think rooster represents that because as the marshal he doesn't have like a personal beef with these guys but he definitely knows they're dangerous Right, right. And he's getting paid. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah. Tim, what do you think about that? I agree with Angelina. I don't think that she's thinking of it like justice in terms of her community, unless you could say, you know, her family is kind of like a subset of the larger, you know, community that's seeking justice. But otherwise, outside of her family, no, I don't think that she was thinking of justice in terms of kind of like um, communal reordering. Hmm. Okay, let's and, go and it's funny. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, it's it's interesting that she did not the thought uh, of um, like personal personally conveying a sense of mercy from her to Tom that just never showed up in the book that I recall. It's, it's not part of her waking thoughts. Hmm. No, and you know, as we're talking about this, I wonder if her failure to have forgiveness in her heart toward him um is part of why she's maimed at the end of the book i want yeah okay so let's go on to this next question because uh that first question was from 
Bethany Cohen, Beth Crawford responds to that and says, um, she, she mentions that she falls further and gets bitten after Tom Cheney's dead body, which is her goal, disturbs the nest of the snakes. So is this a picture of the fruit of revenge or the price of justice? And Angelina, I will flip that over to you first. Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about that also in, in the last episode. Mm-hmm. But I guess this one, the particular twist here is, is after the threat of him is, is gone and he gets thrown, thrown in. Um, I mean, yeah, that's, that's a really interesting metaphor, right? It's, it's his death that brings the threat of the snakes. Hmm. Do you ever feel like some of these questions are like leading questions? Like people have these great insights and they present them as a question, just so we'll mention yeah. them in the air. Uh, yes. <laughs> hey, uh, Tim, I'm going to flip this part over to you because Beth also mentions, asks if uh, Maddie's desire for justice and vengeance is consistent with her Presbyterian convictions or is opposed to them. We didn't talk about uh, her Presbyterianism very much at all on the show. Yeah. We only talk about so much. So I'm curious if you have any comments on that before I flip this next question over to Angelina. So, so is her is her desire well, for justice or vengeance consistent with her Presbyterian convictions or opposed right. to and any other comments you might have on Maddie's sort of Presbyterianism? Because we've got a few questions yeah. on that. So I'll let you touch on that quickly. I, I know. So Presbyterianism is sort of downstream from the reformed movement within Protestantism broadly. Protestantism, of course, includes um, Baptists, the Baptist tradition, the Lutheran tradition, etc. But the Presbyterian movement there's like a, almost a direct line back to the reformers and especially to Calvin in Geneva, John Calvin in Geneva, who, by the way, was trained as a legal scholar. So I, I don't think it's a coincidence. There is kind of a relationship between Presbyterianism and some sense of the uh, deep respect for the law. Let's say that. Oh yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, I kind of think, but the, the the flip side of that is the reform tradition is is there are probably two, two doctrines that reformed um, the reform tradition highlights more than any other, and those are the sovereignty of God and grace for sinners. So, and I think secondary to those is a deep respect for the law, especially God's law. So I'm kind of like winding my way through this question. I I think there's a relationship between Presbyterianism and um, a sense of order and justice, Mm -hmm. though there's a really strong emphasis, I mean, a really strong emphasis also on... um, on mercy on god's grace as his primary benevolent gift gift to sinners okay so let me put it let me kind of focus this question a little bit more for you yeah just because i'm curious about this part of it do you she talks a lot about sort of she references Mm -hmm. um presbyterian her presbyterianism she references like woodrow wilson right right like woodrow wilson being the great presbyterian man or whatever of the century which is a funny little aside that she has there yeah so do you believe that her faith her um presbyterian convictions shall we say are what is guiding her as she moves along throughout this whole adventure or are they or are they something that as an adult much later she is lacing into the story in a sort of um a more didactic way than she you maybe they were she actually intended them as a child uh you know protestantism in general there's like uh the 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 sort of settling of the west Mm -hmm. is in part a story of various religious traditions battling with one another (laughs) um from the way the 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 mormon settled you know in the utah valleys to the way the spanish um founded uh, monasteries and then sort of competed with you know a lot of these different um yeah denominations moving west and of course this goes back to puritanism in the early portion of you know, the settling of the Eastern part of America. So do you think that, 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 that Portis is, is just kind of lacing that in there to inform the story in that way, or is her, are her faith-based convictions actually leading her on her quest? Like, do you see that? Do you see her decisions being consistent with her faith? In other words, I think that her, Oh man, this is, this is a thick 
complicated question to answer. I think that she is motivated by her faith. But I think that the United States, the way that it views the, the Christian faith at this time, really up until, for me, the 1960s, Christianity's primary influence is a sort of civilizing influence, a preservation of civilization. And um, so the establishment of Christendom, which you could kind of argue goes back to Emperor Constantine in the 300s, um, there's a kind of a compact or a contract between the Christian church and Western Europe. They consider their tasks after Constantine to be largely one and the same. Um, and I think that Maddie very much lives in within that vision of what Christianity is. What is Christianity? Sure, there needs to be kind of like a radical call to repent, et cetera, et cetera. But I think more broadly, the Christian church is thought of as a kind of civilizing and civic instruction organization. Mm. So, I, I, Oh, I'm sorry. You're not finished. So that is, I think, the world that she inherited, and it's kind of different than the world of the Gospels. I mean, Jesus and the disciples, to some degree, are outcast from the mainstream religious um, thought of their day. And so it's, it's, it's really hard. I think, yes, she's a, she's kind of like a classic Presbyterian of the 19th century model. Um, But I don't know that she is really espousing what I would think of as kind of like a vibrant New Testament vision of the relationship between um, like the gospel and the world. Right. We've talked about that. Maddie is not particularly self-aware. And I think that plays into this too. Like I don't see her doing anything out of like principled philosophy that she's developed. (laughs) It's just more like, this is obviously the right thing to do. This man committed a murder. Now he must pay for it. Right. Like, I don't, I don't think she's thinking deeper than that. If Portis had described her as seeing herself as the agent of God's wrath or something like that, then I I could make an argument for that, but that was all very missing. Um, the way that she seemed Presbyterian to me, um, and I was Presbyterian for 30 years. So I know that the running joke amongst Presbyterians themselves is that they're the frozen chosen and, Maddie comes across in that kind of cold, emotionless way in, in her dealings with things, right? This, this little, a little bit of detachment. And um, so, so she's definitely not coming out of, say, the revivalist movement, which would have also been going on at that time. She's not somebody who's caught up in the emotions of things. She's, she mm-hmm, just, mm-hmm. this is what you do. And therefore, you're very duty oriented. Also, I think probably- Much more of that Puritan strain. Yes. Also, I think how much more she references her lawyer- is that's probably a Presbyterian thing too. Presbyterians are known for, I mean, John Calvin was a lawyer. They're, they're known for their knowledge of the law and mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. even even their belief that a lot of the Old Testament is the prophets prosecuting a case against Israel and, and the uh, nations and all that. So you get into the, a lot of that theology, which is very lawyerly and adversarial in, in, in its understanding of itself. Um, and so she struck me as Presbyterian as opposed to like the revivalists and, and things like that. Um, mm or even a Roman Catholic, which would have also been around at that time. Okay. So let's, let's move on to the next question. Um, I'm sure we'll touch on some of these ideas some more. And I did want to, we had a bunch of questions on that and comments. So I wanted to at least touch on that topic because we didn't get to do that in previous episodes. Um, All right, Angelina, I'll start with you on this one. What do you make, this is from Eric. What do you make of the fact that Maddie Cheney, Cogburn and LaBeef all end up in the pit in some way or another? Is there anything behind that, I suppose? Oh, well, I mean, yeah, it's obviously intentional by the author. And I'd say that uh, there's a, gosh, my brain is exploding right now. I have so many competing thoughts coming in at the same time. This is why I'm quiet. It's a death match. I think as soon as they set on the quest, we know they're not all going to come out of this alive, right? It's going to be one or the other. This is the way the whole thing is set up. So it's not surprising to me that they all end up in the metaphorical tomb. 
um, where there's a skeleton, you know, it's, it's very clearly a tomb. Um, but so they all have to enter the tomb because that is the point of the quest. It is a fight to the death, but some of them are going to come out and some of them aren't. That's the point. But they, yeah. but they all enter the tomb and they all come out, you know, maimed in some way. None of they're all injured. Labif almost dies. Rooster's injured. Um, Maddie almost dies. And so again, I think, I think it again highlights the incredible price that you pay. So personally, the price you pay in this kind of thing, but probably because it's a Western, there's probably a larger comment on justice in the West and how messy it is and complicated and it's not Mm. tidy. Mm. Uh, Tim, this is from Emily. Let's move on to this one. Emily, uh, asks when Maddie throws about all those Bible verses or when Maddie throws all those Bible verses at us, is she the one preaching or is it the author? She says, Emily says, I can't tell if that is supposed to be part of the humor or not. I think that is Maddie preaching. And I think that our author is kind of grinning at her. I think it's, I mean, it's, it's, oh, I loved that part. That was one of my favorite parts of the book, um, especially listening to it in, on audio. I kept rewinding and listening to it over and over because it's the only time in the book that there's an address, that there is a direct address to the reader, which for a novel is exceptionally uncommon. I mean, she says, What's the line? And you should, it's, it was good enough for Paul and Silas. It's good enough for me. It should, <laughs> it should be good enough for you too, or something like that. I mean, mm. it was so funny. And I think it is Maddie preaching to us. And I think that uh, Charles Portis is smiling and like really giggling at how, <laughs> how not so aware Maddie is in oh, that right. moment. Right. But also just like how matter of fact she is and and simple. And by simple, I just mean like uncomplicated. She's not of two minds. Maddie doesn't like wrestle internally with deep spiritual truths. She just, yeah. she's very matter of fact, right? It's right, right, right. what it means. And yeah. I kept it. And, and she's like this at the end of the book too, which of course makes me wonder, you know, a traumatic event can, um, this is just off the top of my head. I have not, this was not a rehearsed thought. So if this, if this flops terribly, y'all watched it happen live, but um, (laughs) a traumatic event can kind of seal you forever emotionally where you were in that moment. And Maddie doesn't at the end, right? I mean, is she still just this 14 year old girl emotionally at the end of the book and thinks boys are yucky and they're just trying to get my money and She just seems to me to not have changed. <laughs> it's troublesome to me how yeah. much she doesn't change. Yeah. 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 Okay. So given that here, I like this question here. This is kind of a fun one, but we'll, we'll try to look at it sort of from a serious perspective, given what you're saying about her not changing and what we know about her character. Jenny asks, if Maddie wanted to marry, what literary character do you think she would choose for a husband? She says character or type, but I want us to actually choose some other character from literature that's not in this book. So given what we know about her character, this is like if you're working as an actor and you're trying to get into the head of this character and you start asking yourself all these random questions to sort of get yourself right. behind, the, behind, the, uh, behind the eyes, so to speak. You start asking yourself random questions like this. So Tim, I'll let you answer that first. If Maddie wanted to marry, what literary character from another book, just to clarify, do you think she would choose for a husband? <clears throat> well... Probably someone boring from Dickens. (laughs) I think Maddie would choose someone who is like alive and dangerous. And I think that she would be really tempted to be with someone who she does not really favor their moral stance in the world. I think she would fall in love with somebody like Oscar Wilde. I totally agree. And it would end up in a disastrous state. That is how I read her too, <laughs> that she would be drawn to her exact opposite. So I read this alongside Tom Sawyer yeah. and I kept putting them together as a couple in my mind hmm. that she would be so mad and infuriated by him and just mesmerized also. <laughs> <laughs> because okay. he would Dave, love you, to be the beef. He would love that. Do you have somebody, David? You're, no, you're probably right. It's probably an opposite situation. It's probably like, uh, 
I was trying to think about some different Shakespeare characters that might be might be the kind of character she might be interested Benedict in. Benedict would just wear her down. <laughs> yeah. Rooster would play matchmaker. Maybe, yeah. maybe Romeo. I mean, Romeo is, he's impulsive, obviously, like, passionately romantic. He's he is not kind what of like think of as, like, the... He kind of is. Well, and that's how that's how Tom Sawyer is. He lies under the window thinking he's dying of love, and he's totally based on that kind of character. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay, next question from Laura. I want to get through as many as we can. Um, Is true grit the same thing as constancy? Angelina, I'll let you have a crack at that one. You have you have thirty seconds to make a case for why true grit is or is not the same thing as constancy. Go. I don't know. Tim. I don't know what true grit is. It's something <laughs> undefinable there. It's undef- true grit is undefinable, but you know it when you see it. Mm, okay. Tim, comments? True grit, same thing as constancy? Yes or no? No, I don't think so. I assume this is a hearkening back to our Jane Austen's discussions about constancy. It seems that constancy is, there's sort of a North Star there. And I think true grit is is very much practical and the practical aspect of true grit um does not have the luxury of operating according to a pure north star it has to kind of lurch and leap and skip and dug i mean and and kind of like it has to parry thrust and give its own thrust yeah in order to win it's like fighting a foe that's that's got its own it's the foe has his own moves and it has to respond to the, the to that foe. So I don't I don't think I see how they're related. I don't think they're the same. I agree. I, th- I think there's a crossover because I'm thinking of like Sam from Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As a picture of constancy, there's some grit there too, but it's not yes. the same thing. Yes, agreed. Okay, let's let's jump. You know on. what? You know what? Okay, this is crazy. Yeah, I said Thirty seconds. Can I? This is this. <laughs> um, it, do you think Gollum has true grit? He's constant, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let, okay, let me ask this next question. It's kind of a follow-up that Ilya, I, th- okay. I, think, it's, I think it's Ilya, um, asks. She says that Maddie spends the book searching for someone with true grit to help her, and it seems clear by the end of the book that she has as much or more grit than anyone, yet she is not effective either time she tries to kill Chaney herself. It was a great point. What can we make of this? So does grit equal results? And I like, I love this part of the question. Is the idea that grit by itself... Well, okay, is the grit actually what she needed or was that a romanticized notion from a 14-year-old girl? Oh, that's a good question. I love that question, especially as we've talked about sort of the inversion of sort of these romanticized Western stories where you kind of certain values were, um, you know, the kids who are reading these Western stories sort of viewed certain values as the preeminent Western value. And that was what they loved to look for. Right. And, and we talked about like, even in early Western movies, you saw that were like, you had this sort of strong uh, Gary Cooper and high noon sort of strong silent type who was brave under fire and all that kind of stuff. And it sort of changed. They became more complicated. Um, so maybe that maybe the, he's speaking to that same notion, that same idea that what she thought she needed was someone who was just going to go out and win a gunfight, right? And be tough on the, you know, as they were going mm-hmm. along the road. But what she really needed was someone who kind of ended up being able to sort of watch over her. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's super simplified. I just super simplified everything in one sentence and I'm going to get killed for it, I know. But um, no, I, thought those, I, I think those that's a good, great question. Points. It is a great question. I guess a thought I'm having right this second, again, Q&A kills me every time, but a thought I'm having right this second is that, she thinks in terms of the lone cowboy bringing in the lone bad guy, right? She wants Rooster and she says no to Labeef early on, but it's the community in the end that's needed. All three of them are needed. No one could have done it by themselves. She couldn't have done it. Rooster couldn't have done it. Labeef couldn't have done it. Hmm. It took yeah. their little, their fellowship, their quest. Labeef's kind of forgotten, but he was the one who did make the long, you know, 600 yard. He did. Rooster would have died if not yeah. for the sniper shot. And then he just sort of disappears. Uh, Tim, Caitlin. <laughs> Caitlin, I usually silence that. Dang, I had a good Caitlin on the Yeah, Caitlin's on the phone. Caitlin, Caitlin's She's on the phone. In now. It's a call in. What's well, a call in, call in question? She First time that, caller, long time listener. <laughs> yeah, exactly. She <laughs> says that um, 
she and her husband were both confused as to why the courtroom scene with Rooster was never resolved. Um, under, she mentions that it served to show the type of marshal he was, but wouldn't he have had to pay for his treatment of the criminal? It sort of ended abruptly, she noticed. She mentions, um, did no one care that Rooster abused the accused and it sort of just doesn't resolve itself? Thoughts on that, Tim? I think that that was, yeah, exactly as she said, meant to show character. I think we have enough information isn't that judge the judge that mm-hmm. that rooster most prefers to work for because yes. he tends to be lenient with his rangers and his lawmen and he tends to not be lenient with the men that are killed or brought into justice so i don't i don't think that i think we can safely presume that rooster is going to kind of get away with his bending of the law um but i don't think it's really terribly important for the story the main thing for the story is we've got to learn what type of man this this rooster is and we learn a lot during that courtroom scene i didn't think it was unresolved the guy is convicted rooster is not on trial he's a witness so the issue the question of rooster's behavior is never the question of the court right yeah yeah this is the child of a, a family of lawyers speaking on that one. Like, that's just, if something was going to happen to Rooster, that is not where it would happen. But do we get, a, we learn what the verdict is? Yes, because the guy escapes from prison later after the conviction. And Rooster oh, ends yeah, up gosh, I don't remember that at yeah. all. Yeah, so he's convicted and escapes. And he, yeah, and then he gets shot, right? Huh. Yeah, by Rooster. Yeah. <clears throat> Okay, next question. Uh, what is Lviv's purpose in this book? If, Angeline, you're going to like this next little bit here. Leslie sent this in. If it's got the check marks, she puts quotation marks around that, I assume, as an kind of ode to you there. For fairy tale requirements, where does he fit in? She says she sees him as a bit, a bit either as a daub, is that the knight of the Red Cross's dwarf, question mark, or maybe even a Timmy and King Arthur's squire in the fairy, tale, fairy queen version type sidekick. Anyway, would the story be the same without him? Do you think Maddie would have been better or worse off without her distraction as relates to him? Angelina, I will let you touch on that purpose of the beef in the book, perhaps within the fairy tale checkmark system. Uh, it's not unusual for there to be a foil. It's not unusual for there to be a squire. Um, and, yeah, and a foil, uh, I mean, that's going to be in, you know, Right, Almost right. Any book with some and kind of a lot of times in, in a romance, which is just a literary form of a fairy tale, the quest is a group of men devoted to a woman. So he, it's not just a lone knight on a quest, but it's a group. So that works too. And also there are a lot of echoes of Chaucer here of the knight and the squire. The knight in Chaucer, again, this off the top of my head. So that was a good question. Got me thinking about this. Um, <laughs> he's... He is the war-torn guy. He's been through the Crusades. He's looking rough. He's, he's uh, experienced and old. Also, Chaucer goes out of his way to show that that guy is passing away. Um, he has him speak in um, uh, meter that's about 20 years out of fashion, which we totally miss because it's all out of fashion for us. So he's dressed a little bit out of fashion. He talks a little bit out of fashion. There's a nobility about him, but it's very clear that this is passing away. His son, the squire, is the handsome dandy and cares way more about how he looks and his interaction with the ladies than anything else. And he represents the new kind of knight on the scene. So you have a lot of that, a lot of that same dynamic. Hmm. Okay, uh, before we move on, I want to say a quick word from our friends over at Ohio Christian University. They're a values-driven institution that prepares students to become servant leaders engaging their world. OCU's main campus is located in Circleville, Ohio, not Searcyville, Ohio, although maybe we should found that, just 30 miles south of Columbus. At OCU, uh, your students can experience personal relationships with all the professors because of their small class sizes. They have just a 10 to 1 student to faculty ratios, so they definitely take that idea seriously. And they, they value the idea that a professor can know the students' name, all their students' names. OCU is uh, committed to teaching a Christian classical worldview that is taught throughout all of their majors. That's all 30 plus degrees in majors, whether it's business programs or ministry or teacher education or whatever it is, uh, they're focusing on a Christian classical worldview. Uh, OCU is a private school education at a public school cost. Earning a four-year bachelor's degree at Ohio Christian University will cost you less than half the total price of average completion fees. Uh, education should be affordable. 
uh, and OCU works hard to make that possible. You can schedule a campus visit or apply online today at www.ohiochristian.edu or call 1-877-7-O-C-U-N-O-W. So 1-877-7-O-C-U-N-O-W or visit www.ohiochristian.edu. So if you are looking for a possible college for a students for your students uh, in the next couple of years add that to your list to check into definitely recommend you look into their programs okay uh let's see michelle wants to know um why did maddie have to lose her arm was it to illustrate that she wouldn't be able to reintegrate into society to make her less than somehow or is there something i thought or is there something else is it connected to the other amputation in the book um this michelle says amputation gives me the heebie-jeebies so i had a hard time with those two scenes <laughs> I do like the connection between the amputations of the fingers of Moon in the previous section. Yeah, that's good. And, and here. Okay, so anytime in a book... 30 seconds. Okay, anytime in a book someone's lame, it always represents a spiritual lameness. And with Rooster and Maddie, we have the eye that's been plucked out, and we have the arm that's been cut off. And we've got the verse, of course, that if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your arm causes you to sin, cut it off. Um you actually, that's, that's in Jane Eyre. There's a lot of motifs. I know the Jane Eyre fans are now screaming, but a lot of times if you end up maimed with an arm or a hand and an eye that's lost, it is very deliberately relating to that idea. Uh, we know that Rooster is spiritually maimed. Something has happened to him, right? And, and absolutely this thing that Maddie has been through has left her spiritually lame as well. So I think they're both just metaphors. The amputation, I think, is the metaphor for the spiritual price that she's, she's paid. She's not a whole person anymore after mm. this experience. Tim, do you want to add to that? No. All right, Tim, this is for you then. What are the intrinsic differences between Rooster and Cheney? Would Rooster have ended up more like Cheney if his old acquaintance hadn't smothered? Um, I don't know what she's trying to say here, actually. Hadn't this smothered, old acquaintance hadn't smothered uh, her way into the, mar into the marshals. Um, she, Smoothed. smoothed. I bet it's smooth. Smoothed his way. Remember, Potter helps him out. Rooster gets arrested as a yeah, criminal, yeah, yeah. but yeah, Potter yeah, okay. smooths it over. And now yeah. he's not yeah. a criminal. Uh, he's a law man. Okay. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. Actually. Yep. That makes more sense. So, uh, what are the intrinsic differences between Rooster and Cheney is kind of the essential, essential Great part question. of the. Of the See, question. I, I kind of read Rooster. Hang on, you guys. It's yeah. New York. There is. <laughs> do you hear that? I was going to say, are you, like, on for are you having a, are you actually in the middle of a firefight behind you? Like he's either going there. The, the chalk firefight. outline is already around his body for convenience. Yep. He's, he's actually just, it was filming. a mob hit. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You're, you're starring in an, in a movie, in a, in a film, modern noir coming up. It's like a remake of LA confidential in New York. Exactly. Literary detective on the town. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It's called New York clandestine. <laughs> and why clandestine what are the intrinsic differences between yeah. rooster and cheney then i think rooster actually has i think he's an idealist whose heart got broken and i think he's he wants to do the right thing underneath it all underneath the drinking and the shooting and the gambling and all that i think he really is an idealist mm. i don't know that Cheney, Cheney, I think wants money, and I, I think he's just kind of an animal. He's kind of a reptile in cowboy boots. I don't think he has any idealism in him. I don't think there's anything like a higher call within Cheney. Hmm. Hmm. Um, okay, let's uh, let's see. Dan wants to know: Would you consider the Book of Judges to be the Bible's Wild West? Um, the yeah, he mentions uh, in those, the, the, the line or the verse in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own heart or in his own eyes. Heart. He says, I just got to church, so I don't have time to see if someone posted something about this already. But um, it's an, I think it's an interesting question. Um, it is would, an interesting question. Um, can, we, can we say yes? I think yes. Well, on a, on an I think it's a little, I think, I think the difference is that there is, I mean, the law has been established in the book of judges and i think the book of judges is kind of like a rebellion against the law in a way and it's crazy i mean the book of judges is crazy and in that way it absolutely resembles like the edges of the frontier but 
it, it seems like in the Western, we are establishing law in the book of Judges. The law has been established and it's being neglected or revolted against. That seems to me a, a, a substantial difference. So maybe it has more in common, the Wild West has more in common with when the Israelites are in exile and wandering around and are trying to... Yeah, 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 yeah. And they have to fight, and some of those fights are pretty hard to swallow. I guess, and you know, depends on how much of a one-to-one correlation we have to make, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, The right. idea of, of the Book of Judges being a time of uh, lawlessness, I agree, though, that they're rebelling against it rather than that they never had it. Then, then yeah. Okay. Next. How does the book of the book of Judges closes with? I read it a while ago. It's basically the Benjamites cross into another tribe and get themselves. They kind of abuse all these, these women, and the book just kind of ends with that. And you're like, oh my gosh, this is, inc- it's just insane. <laughs> there's no retribution. I mean, it's just insane. It's just like everything is undone. I gotta say, I, I need to I need to brush up on my judges, my my last few chapters of judges, I guess. Okay, um, Esther asked this question. Here's a question that we may have some uh, some quibbling. We might disagree on this a little bit. She says this comes from a previous discussion about the pit scene being a gospel in miniature. So she says, how far should we take symbols and types and metaphors when reading and thinking about a book? Is there or what is the right way to use those things? And how do we know when we move them from using them to better understand a book to using them to make the book say something it is not? I think this is a question that we cannot get to in full in a couple of minutes here, but I would love to hear um, in brief some of y'all's thoughts on this. So Angelina, I'll let you go first. What is okay, the right so, way to, how far should we take them? What is the right way to use them without making them say something that is not? Right. And obviously that's a very good concern to have. Uh, for me, the key is just to read what it says instead of reading into what it says, right? So um, archetypes do exist and symbols are used in a tradition. They're not arbitrary and authors know exactly what they're doing, right? And so Portis- Good ones do anyway. <laughs> good ones know, exactly. Yeah. Portis the knows- The ones that are part of the canon. When he makes a pit and he fills it with all the symbols of death, darkness, bats, and snakes, he knows it's a pit, he knows it's a grave. But very often the authors will go one more and I like to tease my students about it and I always say like, just in case you missed it, here comes one more. And in this case, Portis puts a a skeleton in it with snakes inside. Like it could not be more neon sign that this represents a grave. There is a body in it. Uh, and, and, and then she, and he's, she describes it. She says it's hell. Right. And she says, I felt my whole, my spirit come out of my body. It's, it's, yeah. it's very clearly there. So what I would say is you have to read the words. What do the words say? What, and, and not just jump to conclusions, right? Somebody trips into a, <laughs> you know, a pothole on a road, that's not necessarily a symbol of death. But if they're packing it full of other symbols of death, if they're saying, I felt like I died in that moment, then you have to put the whole of it together. I also am cautious about stretching things too far. And if maybe there's just one little hint, I'm not going to build a whole case, a whole metaphorical and allegorical case around one little hint. But the good authors will give you a bunch of symbols. They will throw it all at you so that there is no question that this is what they intend. Tim, do you want to add anything to that? Or do you generally agree with that? No, I, I agree with that. I think the author sets the rules for the world that we're inhabiting. And of course, that rule that I'm just going to say the same thing that Angelina said in different ways, that world has ties to the tradition of literature that we have talked about so many times on this show. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we, the author is the guide not the tradition is not the God. The tradition is um, a helper, but the, I think the tradition is the servant to the author, if that makes any sense. Well, yes, because sometimes, I think I know what you're saying. Um, they are working in the tradition, even when they subvert it or turn it on its head, like Picasso, right? Like he knew the rules of painting. It wasn't that he didn't know how to draw proportion, right? He was playing with it on purpose. Mm-hmm. So they're still working within the tradition, even if they are intentionally violating it. And, and for that very good reasons, I'm thinking of some things C.S. Lewis does where he very intentionally violates the tradition, um, but it's for a very, it's for, it's for a purpose. It's all very deliberate. So, right. And I, I and think, we, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, I think one of the things that to look for 
um, when we when we want to know if 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 we're trying to if we're start, starting to force them to say things that that the book isn't saying. One of the things to look for is whether we're identifying sort of an internal con- or whether the things we're seeing are sort of consistent with the internal reality of the, that the book has created. Um, and I'm reading a book, a screenwriting book um, by Robert McKee. It's called Story, actually. And he talks a lot about how there's a, a difference. The, yeah, there's a difference between um, the internal a sort of consistent internal reality in the book and, and a book being consistent with like actuality, like actuality mm-hmm. is the world we live in and it doesn't have to be consistent with that, but the world itself that the book is creating does need mm-hmm. to be consistent. And so when we're looking at some symbols and we're trying to make it say something, one of the questions we can ask ourselves is, is this thesis that I'm coming up with or this argument that I'm trying to make or whatever, however you want to put it, is it, can it happen in the, within the, 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 the consistent logic and reality of the work itself? Or am yeah. I trying to, am I trying to, you know, pull something out of that logic and make it do something that, that that logic would not permit or that reality would not. Yeah. Permit? Exactly, so, exactly. Yeah. So anyway. and we've talked about this before, really it's the difference between imposing something and uncovering something, right? Yep. We're trying yeah, to yeah. uncover what's really in the book. We're not trying to impose something on the book. Okay. Can we, before, yeah, go, go, before go, we move go. on from this, David, yeah, just because yeah. I'm anticipating potential confusion among our listeners. I mean, as a teacher of the great books and as someone who loves the classics, who loves literature, I consider my job as a teacher to some degree is to point toward the authority of the canon. You know, the canon is good. Um and so I said a little while ago that the tradition or the canon is the servant to the author. But we're talking about when I said that, that's, in, that's when we're reading a book and trying to make sense of the book. I think when we're a teacher, the task changes a little bit. Yes, we still need to teach the author's intention, I think, when we're teaching a book. But... Um, there's kind of like another role that we play as teachers, which is there are established um, kind of like authorities and greats within the field that we teach. And Homer is one of them. And we should point to Homer and kind of like the tradition that Homer inhabits as good final resting places. But as a reader, I think, that that if we make the gosh how do we say this if we make the upholding of the tradition the way that we read the book rather than trying to understand what the author is saying i think we get a little bit confused hmm. this is like a two-hour talk that i'm trying to give in 30 <laughs> seconds yeah yeah well then we're going to move on so yeah do you, i don't know if either of you have any input on this i definitely have lots uh jill asks if there are suggestions for other Western novels to read, do either of you? I have... do not, but I would love to hear it. <laughs> Tim, do you have Tim? You, I'm guessing you'll Lonesome Dove. Yeah, Lonesome Dove. Lonesome All the pretty Dove. horses. Yeah. yeah. Um, if you can handle it, um, Blood Meridian, but don't read that until you've read a lot of other Cormac McCarthy first. Yeah, I would read the the, the trilogy, which is All the Pretty Horses, The Crossing, and Cities of the Plain. Um, Cities of the Plain. I would read that trilogy. Yeah. Before um, I read, even though the the um, Blood Meridian takes place in the West, also it's just it's ooh, bloody, man, it's a bloody. slaughter fest. Um, yeah, and I would I would definitely you know some one of, one of the game changer novels was the Riders of the Purple Sage by Zane Grey. That was one of the first books that kind of took it from you know we it was no longer pulp. They were no longer pulp fiction. There was like real novels. Uh, Louis Lamour's got lots of good books. Um, so I, I wouldn't feel bad about reading those. I, I love those. I've read many of them. Probably like I probably read twenty five of those when I was in middle school, um, and um, I would highly, highly, highly recommend um, A. B. Guthrie's trilogy. One of them won the Pulitzer Prize. I think it was called The Way West. The second one. Those are maybe they they start out as kind of frontier books, um, and then they sort of become more Western books. Um, They're and, good, David. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Martin Cawthron's the one that turned me onto those. Actually, um, Shane was a book you can read that. Um, one, uh, the Searchers was also a novel first. I mean, these are became great movies, but most of the, most of the great Western books began as novels, which are which are worth checking out. And if you really like Western stories, 
I'm a huge proponent of reading some of the screenplays of the great Western novels because they just know how to tell a story and the dialogue's so good. And um, a lot of the descriptions that you get in great Western screenplays, like The Searchers, for example, is really novelistic. Um, although it moves at a much more brisk pace than most novels. But I definitely, if you, you, know, you can find almost any of those screenplays, High Noon, The Searchers, um, most of the John Wayne movies, Rio Bravo, like a lot of those screenplays are for free online you can just google them so I, if you're looking for more western stuff to read those are always fun to take a you can read a screenplay in an hour so um those are fun to do as well um let's see here we don't have a lot of time so i'm trying to there's so many people have good questions here um everybody likes maddie but would you really want to go up against her if she were your neighbor or banker i feel like that's a rhetorical <laughs> question um I'd be terrified if she was my banker. <laughs> okay, let's do this one. I couldn't help... Jennifer says, I couldn't help compare... I feel like Jennifer left a lot of questions. Um, <laughs> Jennifer likes this book. Um, Which Jennifer is it? There Jennifer, we, yeah, we're going to throw her... Say her last throw, name? Yeah, Jennifer Collins. I'm not throwing you under the bus, Jennifer. It's a good thing. I couldn't help comparing Maddie with Frodo Baggins, says Jennifer, and I think Angela, you may have, may have mentioned that before. She says, they both volunteer for their respective quests and it nearly kills them. They're wounded and unable to rejoin society afterwards. Are there other instances in literature of this type of character? Can you think of, let's just say, wonder if you can each think of one. Characters that volunteer for a quest, the quest nearly kills them, they're wounded and unable to rejoin society afterwards. Oh gosh, I'm drawing a blank. It's not it's not in the same way, but I actually think Huckleberry Finn kind of fits into this a little bit in a weird way. Um, um most of the great characters that that happens to, they die. <laughs> but um, one of the things that Tolkien is is doing there uh in in his refusal to let Frodo reintegrate into society, which is the same thing that happens to Maddie, is he shows the great cost. You know, one of the things that right. he's writing this after World War uh, One and Two, And so he, um, one of one of the things that he felt so strongly after his experience in World War One was that, yes, evil can be defeated. He has not lost his hope for that, but that it's going to, when it's defeated, it's going to come at an incredible price and cost. And, and that's one of the great things that the Lord of the Rings does is it, it does show that evil can be defeated. It also shows the horrible, horrible price that you pay to defeat evil. And so Frodo can't be reintegrated into society. And um, that's a break from, um, that's a break from medieval romance, which always reintegrates. But does, that's not necessarily a break from the Anglo-Saxon tradition, though, which is much darker. So I don't know. I don't have an example. How about Ishmael from Moby Dick? Hmm. I have to. I have not never read, that read Moby Grip, Moby Dick. Thinking about that, Moby Dick's Who another book we can never to do go on. on the show. Yeah, Be, yeah. Because it's so long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he volunteers to go on the whaling vessel. It is very Ahab, the captain of the ship, is very much on a spiritual quest that Ishmael gets swept up into. That spoiler alert: ship is destroyed by the great white whale. Ishmael is injured out to sea. I love the spoiler yeah. alerts on like three hundred year old books that pretty much yeah, right, right. pretty right. obvious what's going to happen. <laughs> right. Spoiler on the Bible: the great dragon is thrown into the pit. For all, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that very much fits the pattern. I mean, you yeah. can kind of I've heard That's it said one. that like there's only two types of story. One of them is a stranger comes to town. The other one is someone goes on a journey. You know. It's, I, I think if we stopped and thought about it for a while, we could probably think of hundreds of different characters that probably fit the mold. It's a, it's a pretty, it's a, well, it's an extremely common Western trope. Um, the characters who have to go on an adventure, they almost always are, you know, some kind of character that volunteers to help someone else and it goes badly. And they may not be physically like physically uh maimed forever but you know there's something dark within them that keeps them from being a part of it i mean that's the classic you know okay just watch the searchers i'll just, I'll just keep Wait, talking i'm gonna play the jesus chord jesus <laughs> he volunteered well, true. It's true. and he ends up very maimed absolutely yeah. true um angelina do you have to leave uh, in 10 minutes, I have to start a class. Okay, last question. I'll just then. seamlessly go from... <laughs> okay, if Angelina disappears, that's why. It's not because of the rapture. Um, 
It might also be that. <laughs> I don't like the implication that I would be left behind, David. I was I was I feel like I'm I was implying something sort of the opposite there. Um, okay. Uh I don't maybe we shouldn't joke about that though. Um Okay, here, here's the last question. And I think this is a good one to end our discussion of True Grit on. And this is from uh, Chandra, I think. I don't know how to pronounce your name. Chandra, we're going to go with that. Is True Grit always admirable? Is it a virtue? Do you have to be a sort of hardened character like Maddie or Rooster in order to have it? Does grit come only from being in wild, difficult, uncomfortable circumstances in life? And are there examples of True Grit in the characters in other books we've read on Close Reads? Is not one question, but let me. Um, is Trigger always admirable, Angelina? Yes or no? No, because I think vir- some of the bad guys might have it too. Is it a virtue? Yeah. Too? Is it a virtue no, that even a bad guy? Can no, have? I think it's. I think it's more of a disposition that a bad guy could have. I mean, okay. I think there's a difference between like a personality and uh, an inclination of personality and virtue and I, I would put true grit more in like an inclination of personality okay do you have to be a sort of hardened character to have it angelina yes i think yes i think and i think it's true the, the person who earlier said maddie is looking for true grit and in the end it turns out she has it i think that's part of why she's so hard at the end hmm. Uh, does it come from only being in wild, difficult, or uncomfortable circumstances in life? I, I would say adversity usually is what demonstrates grit. Hmm. Are there examples of true grit in the characters and other books we've read on Close Reads? <sighs> grit is not necessarily a word I would toss around for British novels. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying that Elizabeth Bennett is not seen as true grit? You know, she's got a lot great qualities she would probably slap you if you called her gritty so yeah, there's a difference between spunk and grit right yeah <laughs> okay, okay let's let's try this though do, do you think penelope has true grit or just grit it, the odyssey's penelope yeah i, I think it would depend how we hmm. defined it but yeah i would be okay with that hmm. she demonstrates a certain grit to withstand odysseus does well, he's definitely yeah. he's definitely got true grit. He might be the archetype of all archetypes for grit. Yeah, he might be. Yeah. Um, um, well, you know what? Speaking of books that we read on Close Reads, we're going to find out in the next few weeks whether Bertie Wooster has true grit. Um, Obviously, yes. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice segue. And next time on Close Reads, we're going to tell you <laughs> why Bertie Wooster has the least grit of anybody we've ever read about. Um, right. Speaking of which, we're going to read. Um, we're going to read the first four chapters. We're going to. I think we'll do three episodes on it plus a Q and A. I put that poll up, and that was the winner. And I think that was where I was leaning anyway. So if we do the first four chapters that should put us on target it's a fast read it's an easy read it's not going to be like we're not going to be slogging through it um so let's plan for that that'll give us about a little over a week to read that um and get ready for so four chapters of the code of the Woosters by pg woodhouse um you will i think you will laugh um often and i would recommend from experience that you don't read this like with a flashlight um, or under the covers at nighttime because your spouse will wake up because you're shaking the bed laughing. I would <laughs> throw that out there. Um, or if you have like, you know, you're gonna wake your dog up or whatever, or, you know, if you're, if your kids are, if your kids are in the, in the room and you're, and you're like sitting in the other room and they can hear you laughing, be, just the point is be quiet as you're reading it. If you're reading it late at night, cause you will, you will make noise. Um, I guess that's it. Do you have any final thoughts on true grit before we, before we close out this this neck this uh once again we close out a book here on close reads you could buy true grit for your grandmother or for your grandson and both will be happy hmm. i like that that's that's a rare thing too angelina do you have anything you want to add to that maybe that i think it's it's easily approachable yeah it is yeah some, Which I, I mean, guess some, is the same thing he said, sort of. <laughs> yeah. Just, I'll just reiterate. No, I'm not. Hey, I'm not saying you shouldn't have said it. I just made me realize, I guess, you guys are kind of making the same comment. Well, mm-hmm. it's just that a lot of times a great book can be difficult to enter because there's a lot of assumptions and things that you need to orient yourself to the world you're about to enter so you don't read it wrong. Uh, but uh, just off the top of my head, I mean, 
I'm not a person who's ever lived in the West or in the 1800s. And yet it, it was, it was easy to get oriented in this world. I didn't find it confusing and have to Google a bunch of things to figure out what was going on. So I think you can, I think you can really immerse yourself in the story and the characters without too much preparatory work. Mm-hmm. Well, I always love reading a Western. So, you know, I'm glad everyone enjoyed that and it gives me some, gives me some hope that I can push more and more Westerns moving forward. Um, you can, it's great. Does um, he write other Westerns? Charles Portis? What other stuff does he write? Is he not, a Western writer? Not strictly speaking, not like, you know, like um, the writer of Lonesome Dove or whatever. I mean, his books kind of take place. They're often road trip books, Norwood, The Dog of the South and so forth. Ah. So Dog he likes quests. Yeah, yeah. Dog of the South is probably the book that I would read next if I was looking for something to read of his. Um, it's not. It's another one. Like they're very brisk books. They're they're not like they're not difficult. They're high energy. All right. Well, with that, with that, I would say. <clears throat> wow. At the end of a, <laughs> at the end of a long episode, m- my mouth is getting dry. I, you know, whatever. Um, in theory, to I say my I, older daughter speaking is not my native language. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would say we're going to cut that out. I'm probably not going to bother though. I'm just going to leave it there. I don't want to have to do any work yeah. on it. So, for Angelina Stanford and for Tim McIntosh, I am David Curran. Thanks so much for joining us on this journey through True Grit. Enjoy reading the Code of the Worcesters. We will talk to you next week here on Close Reads. Mm-hmm.